Today, as we jump into today's passage, um, I'll just tell you up front, we're going we're gonna to do some stuff that's maybe a little bit politically incorrect at the beginning here. But it seems like that keeps happening as we go on this series that we're doing called uh, The Gospel Truth. We're going through the book of Romans, and it says some stuff that's kind of sensitive. It kind of steps on people's toes a bit. Today, we're going to learn that God judges the Jews. That may sound almost, almost racial, you know, and, and then especially we say, well, we go to the Old Testament. Isn't that all about the Jewish people? So what does God have against the Jews? Well, that's not the point. Um, God loves the Jewish people. They are his chosen people. But the problem is, is he will judge them just like he will judge everybody. And like everybody else, they'll, they'll come up short. We all come up short at the end of the day. Remember, we learned at the beginning of Romans, in Romans chapter 1, that God um, offers us his righteousness. He will make us right in his sight. Now that's based, as we'll see this more and more, on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But the only thing that we can do to receive that righteousness, to have a relationship with God, to live with him forever in heaven, to have his guidance in his life, there's, there's only one thing we can do, is we fall on our face before him. We surrender. It's all by faith. We trust in him for this to happen. And so that's what it's all about. That's, that's great news. We don't have to work our heads off. You know, work, you know, we don't have to do all this stuff to get it. It's, it's offered to us by faith, through his grace. But we're in this first section that's a little bit troubling because it's called the problem. And the problem is, is that the vast majority of people through all of history have rejected what God is offering. The immoral person we learned has clenched their fist and they're, I'm going to do it my way attitude. And then we last week talked about, probably talking a little, mostly about the Jewish person, but in general, in principle, it's really for everybody. And we're talking about this issue of morality. The moral person is upset that God won't accept their imperfect immorality. You know, their imperfect morality because it's actually immorality before God. Our perfect morality always falls short of his perfect morality. Our, our efforts at perfect morality never, never get there. And so that doesn't work. And so today, we're going to talk about the Jewish person, but really, we have to remember that the most of the Christians in Rome were Jewish. Um, Paul's message is not really just for the Jewish people. His message is for the religious person. He will use them as an example, so to speak, because they represent the, the, the main people that he's talking about here. But, but in truth, in principle, the religious person. If I'm religious and I go to church and I do all the right things... Is that going to be good enough to get me into heaven? Once again, Paul's going to say, no. Nothing's good enough. Just accept what God's done for you. And so he gets back to that today. And so we're going to look at that. And then next week we're going to conclude this series that we call The Problem by looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So please go ahead and read that and prepare yourself. But now please follow along as we read Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 8. And we'll see what Paul says today. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? What you preach against stealing, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? 
You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precept of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically circumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then, how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. Paul, I mean, he goes all over the place here. We got to slow this thing down to understand exactly what he's saying. It's not quite as complicated as it seems, although there's there's levels of depth to it. Um, But what we're going to see is Paul is doing what's a diatribe. In other words, he has made up an imaginary Jewish person that he's debating. So he's going back and forth. And that's why it gets a little bit confusing. You say, well, this side here, this is what you're saying, but this is what God's saying. This is what you're saying, but this is what God's saying. Have you ever thought of this? So he's, he's using that as a technique in the way he's writing. So God judges the Jew, and the first thing is they boast in the law, they break in verses 17 through 24. He starts off and he begins to tell them that uh, there's some good things about them. Like anything else, you know, when he's talking about this, he sort of butters them up at first. And he says, here's some good things about what you believe in. Here's some good things about who you are. And then he begins the, the road down the, the steps of descent. Uh, he begins and he says, you're Jewish. That, you, you're proud of being a Jew, aren't you? You should be. You're from the tribe of Judah. They were the last tribe left standing when Israel was destroyed. You're still surviving. You are the remnant of Israel. You are the representative of God's chosen people. You should be proud of that. That's a good thing. Good thing that you're proud of that, in a sense. Uh, he says, you, you rely on the law. What would the law be? What was the law that they relied on? What was he referring to for us today? What would that be? What, what, what is it that we read? It's our Bible, right? The Old Testament. Is it good that they relied on the Old Testament? Good thing. Good thing, guys. That's good. You boast in God. Is it a good thing to boast in God and tell him how much you love him? Yeah, that's a good thing. You know what's right. You know you have it in your Bible. That's a good thing. Um, You're instructed from it. But then he begins his descent. But you think that you're a guide to everybody else. 
You think everybody else is blind. You think you have it together and they don't. You think you're the adult and they're the children. You're looking down on everybody else. And he says, you're teaching them, but who's teaching you? Seems like you're not practicing what you're preaching. And then he goes back basically to chapter 1. He says, you know what? You're no different than the immoral person. Because they steal, and there are not all of you, maybe, but basically, essentially, all of you steal. To some degree, somebody, you know, we do things, we're all imperfect people. You know, we have bad thoughts. You may, you know, and there are people among you that are Jewish that commit adultery. There are people among you who get into idolatry. There are people among you who, you know, think that the law, the Bible is so important that you put that over God. And you boast in it. And you get, you get really into this stuff. And he says, remember when Isaiah chapter 54 verse 5, or chapter 52 verse 5, Isaiah chapter 52 verse 5 said that you were going to be take, beaten as a nation and taken away to another land. And when that happened, it would happen because you were disobedient to God. But people would say, how could they have a great God if God would let this happen to them? And so my name was put down because of your behavior. He says, now you're back in your land and you think you got your chest puffed out. Look how good we are. And you know what? You're no better than that. You were before. People are looking at you and saying, why would we want what they have? They think they have it all together, but they're, they're a mess. They're no better than we are. And so that's the message he has for them just from the very start. And you look at that and you go, wow, the Jewish people are, are really messed up. They've got some real issues, right? But in principle, can this relate to us? Does this in any way relate to a church? Let's back up and look at it from this perspective. You call yourself a Christian. Well, I guess that's a good thing. You rely in the Bible. You boast in God. You know or should know what God teaches. Do you therefore think that you're better than others? Do you think that you're the guide for them, that you're the one that has to show them how to do things, that you're the instructor and they're foolish? You're teaching others who's teaching you. Are you listening to the Bible? Are you learning from it? You say that people shouldn't steal. Do you steal? Malachi chapter 3 verse 5 says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. Do we rob God ever? How would we rob God? But you say, how have we robbed you? Oh, there, he says the same thing. And it goes on in your tithes and contributions. If you don't give and give to God and you're not generous with others, you're, you're robbing. You're robbing God. You say, well, we don't commit adultery. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 29, if you look on somebody and you have bad thoughts in your heart, you're committing adultery. We can't, we can't maintain this perfect law. If we think that we're getting to heaven because of the way we behave, because of all the stuff, good things we've done, and because we follow the Bible, so to speak, we aren't because we can never follow it perfectly. And so we all fall short. And so the religious person isn't going to make it. You can't make it on your own. And that's why the only way you can make it is in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I don't know, you know where you're all at. I'm assuming most of you have heard this before because you know, I know your faces. But it's such an important thing to say that this is, 
it's actually a good thing. We're going to see this as we develop it more. It's a good thing to recognize that you can't make it on your own. And it brings a tremendous amount of relief. We try so hard, don't we? And we're just pounding our head against the wall, and it's not working. And then you come to the point where you say, God's done it for me. And I need to surrender to him. And I need to recognize Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the grave. I'm not good enough. He is. I surrender my life to him, and I allow him to come and work with me. It's not like you just don't do anything anymore, but now you do it arm in arm. And you have his guidance and direction in life. And so this is where Paul's heading with this. Now, he goes on to this next point, and he says they place their trust in circumcision. um, Verses 25 to 29. And, you know, some of this stuff, maybe at first you think it's hard to relate to. We're talking about another religion. But um, now you're thinking, how's he going to make this right? Especially with all of our men gone at uh, retreat. Um, this is this is circumcision is about it's a medical procedure for men that was designated though to mark a man as being holy and set apart for God it was a mark that they were an Israelite okay it had spiritual ramifications the spiritual ramifications were that they had dedicated themselves to God based on his covenant they had done this in obedience to God, and it was a sign that they were in agreement with and allegiance with the God of the universe. That's what it's about. By this time, every child, every baby boy was circumcised by the time they were eight. And the understanding was that you needed to be circumcised to get to heaven. And if you were circumcised, you were going to heaven. In fact, rabbis would teach that if you weren't circumcised, you were going to hell. And if you were circumcised, you're in good shape. In fact, there was this famous tradition that Abraham, the father of the, the, of the Jewish nation, of, the, of all the Israelites, he would sit at the gates of Gehenna, which is hell, and make sure that uh, no, no circumcised person accidentally got in. And so, understand what they're saying now. now. Now it begins to make more sense maybe for you. What the Jewish people are saying is, okay, this is Paul's opponent. Okay, 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 you got me. I'm imperfect. I don't keep the law perfectly. I know it's not good enough. I can't get to heaven on my own efforts. But I have been circumcised, so I'm good to go. I've got my life insurance. And Paul says, nope, that's not going to do it for you. And he goes on and he explains it in a very interesting manner. He says, think about it this way. Think about a person who's not been circumcised but comes closer to living the law out than you do. How do you deal with that? They're not circumcised, but they're living like a circumcised person is supposed to be living. Then, in a sense, it's as if they are circumcised. He says, spiritually, spiritually they are circumcised. If they, if they really do follow me. You see, we all, and we've talked about this before, we all know in our hearts, we have this, God has put in our hearts what's right and wrong. We don't have to have the law to know the major things. In almost all societies in the world, we know that lying, cheating, stealing, murder is wrong. I mean, there's variations of that. There are occasionally you'll read about people that, you know, practice one of those things and they, it's just part of their lives. But it, it's very odd when that happens because it just basically we know that's wrong. And we feel guilty when we do those things. And so Paul is saying if a person 
just follows their heart and does the basic things that are right, then aren't they more Jewish than you are? Spiritually speaking, they're more Jewish than you are. They're following my laws more than you are. You see where he's going with this? So he says, what do we, what do, we do with that? This one guy, he, he puts it this way. Everett Harrison, an old um, commentarian, he said, it's like our drinks. You know, we have a drink and we, we say Pepsi on it. And then we pour it out and it comes out Sprite. Wait a minute, it said it was Pepsi. These guys are marked, they're circumcised, I'm Jewish. But when you pour it out, they're just like the Gentiles. See what he's saying? And that's what's going on here. You're marked, so what? Does it matter if what's in you is coming out and it's the wrong thing? And then he goes on to what's in you. And he's following what Moses' train of thought. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10 and some of the old stuff, Moses says, you know, we only can be transformed by God and we can only be transformed supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. And he will circumcise our hearts. And we look forward to the day when the Spirit of God will come and he will inaugurate a new era. And he will then clean our hearts and he will circumcise our hearts. And so that's what he's saying at the end here. He's saying the Spirit of God has come The error has come, but surprise, you're not going to get there by following the Bible, and you're not going to get there by being circumcised. You're going to get there by the Spirit of God living within you. That's the only way. Once again, you have to surrender your life to God. Now, we talk about this and we say, well, well, how does this relate to us? You know, circumcision isn't a bad thing. In fact, there's some health reasons to it and has some spiritual significance. I, I know, I mean, it, sounds, it may sound strange, but I, had a, I developed a good relationship, actually, with um, our pediatrician. Dr. Weintraub was an incredible physician, one of the most remarkable physicians I've ever met. He twice um, diagnosed catastrophic illnesses in our kids. He was an amazing troubleshooter and just a good guy. He was actively involved in his synagogue as a Jewish man. His rabbi, Rabbi Zuckerman, we called him Zuki. He was... Um, one of the guys that was on the sheriff's deputies uh, as a chaplain with me, and I knew, I knew Zuki. Um, and so we became friends. He even came, um, Dr. Weintraub even came to my son's birthday party at Chuck E. Cheese once, so that was a badge of honor. Um, and he ate the pizza. It was amazing. He, he hung in there. But, um, <laughs> but anyway, when he circumcised my son, I went with him, and it was almost a sacred experience because he was a man who, though he wasn't a follower of Christ, he, he was, you know, he, he knew the value of this from his perspective. And I thought... This is, this is really, you know, there's something sacred about this. But you know what? Did it save my son? Didn't save him. Didn't save him at all. Do we ever think that there's things, we say, well, that, that's old school. Do we ever think that there's things we do today that save us? Rituals or things within the church? Am I saved because I grew up, you know, we blessed, grew up in a country with Christian heritage. Am I saved because I'm an American? No, no, no. Am I saved because I go to church every week? Does that do it? A membership. Grandma prayed for me. Those things don't do it. Now let's get a little closer to home. How about Lord's Supper? If I take the Lord's Supper, is that a guarantee that I'm saved? A lot of people in history have felt that's true. In fact, some churches have used that to manipulate leadership. Um, the Catholic Church did that with one guy. They made him stand out in the cold until he, you know, did his penitence and did what the Pope wanted him to do before they would give him, you know, give him uh, the Lord's Supper so that he could not lose his salvation. So they would use that. And manipulate. This is way back in the medieval days, you know, the Dark Age. 
But people would do that. Are you saved by salvation? Uh, by, by, are you saved by the Lord's Supper? Or does the Lord's Supper just basically tell people you have been saved? You know, the Lord's Supper, you take after your salvation to say, this is what happened to me. Now we'll get closest to home. Do you know what scholars, the, the, vast, the basic concession is among conservative scholars of the Bible about what the parallel is to, for us as Christians to circumcision? You want to guess? What do you think it is that we do today that we say is the mark of our faith? And if you've had this, people tend to think they might be saved. That's going to save them. What do we do? You got it. Baptism. Baptism is the modern-day circumcision. I've been baptized. I'm getting in. Does baptism save you? Some people think it does. In fact, there's people that freak out because they have to baptize their children as infants so their kids won't, won't die and, and, and go to hell. Very strange, but, but, but I mean, it, we've been taught that a lot. I, I had a lady on the phone. I talked to her for a couple hours once about that, and it was really hard. Uh, the child has to come to know Christ themselves, just like we all do. That's what baptism is. Baptism is when you articulate your faith. There's, three, there's really three kinds of baptisms that are recorded in the Bible. Baptism, understand, just means washing. The first is the ceremonial baptisms. We've talked about this recently. When I went recently to Israel, you have these ritual baths everywhere. And they would take these baths. They would essentially baptize themselves. They would wash themselves so that they were clean. John the Baptist would baptize people ceremonially with the purpose of saying, you're being baptized because you're changing from who you are and you're preparing, you're confessing your sins and you're preparing for the coming of Jesus. Not for salvation, but to prepare you. If a person was a Gentile or non-Jew and became a Jew, he would baptize to get rid of his past, turn from being a Gentile, turn to being a Jew. There's a second kind of baptism. That's a spiritual baptism. That is when God, through the Holy Spirit, supernaturally comes in you and washes you clean of your sin and comes to live inside of you forever. That's the second kind of baptism. Third kind of baptism is often called symbolic baptism. And that is the physical baptism that we do when we come out symbolically to say, this is what happened to me. The Holy Spirit cleansed me. Now I'm going to go in the water and come out to show that I have given my life to Christ. It is a declaration of my faith. And in the early church, it was often seen as almost an initiation rite. I am part of you. We are a family. I am in. Aren't saved by baptism, but should you be baptized? By all means, Jesus commands it. And the interesting thing is, in the early church, people were baptized almost as soon as as they got saved. It was almost at the same place. So, you know, I know some of you, you know, you're at, um, we're at different places, but if you've not given your life to Christ, you know, that's the balance. We're going to be having baptisms pretty soon. Um, we're not for sure when exactly we're going to do it, but we need to know we have at least one person that wants to be baptized, possibly two. I need to talk to the other one. And um, if there's anybody else here that has given their life to Jesus Christ and hasn't been baptized, then you need to be baptized. In our church, we try to have people be baptized as soon as we can, but we also want them to understand we don't have the cultural background that they have, so sometimes people don't understand. We have actually a lot of cultural baggage in our culture where people don't understand baptism, so we want to make sure you understand it before we do it. We usually say we wait until kids are at least 10 years of age so that they can articulate it and so that they'll remember what they're doing. Um, 
And then, you know, we go from there. By the way, if your, kid, if your kid's little, what you do is you pray for them more. You know, that's what we call a baby dedication, where they would take babies to Jesus and others and they would pray over them. And we haven't had a baby dedication for a while, but if you're interested in that, come and see us on that. And if you uh, want to be baptized, please come and talk to us. I suspect that there may be somebody here that needs to be baptized. So, so that relates to us. And then we get into the last um, area here, and this is kind of interesting. Paul talks about um, how they stand before a just God. And so Paul now is kind of, it's almost like Paul the Christian is debating Paul the Jew. It's like, you know, it's almost like he's talking. Remember the Tom and Jerry, you know, cartoons where they had the devil on one shoulder and the, and the angel on the other? It's almost like Paul is going back and forth and talking to himself. Almost like a split personality here. But it's all part of his routine, right? It's his literary style that he's using to hold your attention and to get you thinking and help you think about things from all different angles. So what he says here is he says, you know, what advantage is it to be a Jew? I've just shot it down. Why would you even want to be a Jew? And his answer is, he says, because they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. And then Paul becomes the absent-minded professor, which he sometimes does, very frequently does. And he, he only gives us one reason. And he doesn't go on to give us the other reasons why it's valuable until chapter 9. He goes off on a tangent. Paul does that every once in a while. But we get the first reason why it's important to be a Jew that he thinks of, that comes to his mind. It is because they've been entrusted with the oracles of God. Oracles, the word is grammar. Not from what we get grandmother, um, but it comes from what else? Grammar, grammatical. Um, and that's what we literally means the word or, or the, the Old Testament again. He said they would have been entrusted with the Old Testament. In his um, amazing uh, paraphrase, the message, Eugene Peterson says they've been put in charge of writing down and caring for God's revelation. That's a great explanation. They've been put in charge of writing down and caring for God's revelation. In other words, the Jewish people were given the message of God to write it down, and then they preserved it through their scribes so that we have it today, or we wouldn't have any of this. And Paul says, that's a value. That's a legacy. You can hold on to that one. You should be proud of that. That's good. And then he, before he goes on, he goes back to the second question, which he says is, what is the value of circumcision? And he goes and he says, well, if somebody is circumcised but they're unfaithful, yeah, it doesn't work. Well, if, you know, the, what, what is he, he basically gets into, is it right for God to judge somebody because they've been unfaithful in their circumcision? What, is that right for God to judge him? And he says, it's right for God to judge him. He says, it's right. It doesn't, you know, they say, well, we've been good enough, we've been circumcised, but you've been unfaithful. What, what if we're faithful, you know, the point is, is God is right to do this. And the reason why he gives is from um, Psalm 51, verse 4, where he says that you may be justified in your words, um, but you're not going to prevail until you're, you know, you're prevailed when you're judged. And that comes from, that passage comes from, and they knew this because they knew their Bible as well, from King David. Remember what happened to David? The great king of Israel committed adultery and murder. And he tried to suppress it. And eventually he came to this verse, and he doesn't cite the beginning of this verse, but the beginning of the verse says it all. David says, I have sinned against you and you only. He says that to God. I have sinned against you and you only. He understands that his sin was not primarily against other people, but against the God of the universe. And what God is saying is, if you are unfaithful to me, if you are unfaithful to me, then I am 
justified in judging you, and it's to your benefit that I judge you. Because if I judge you, this is God's grace, if I don't judge you, you go on sinning and you're destroyed. But if I judge you, you see that you're a sinner and you need me, and you're saved. And so when I judge you, I'm showing you grace. I don't have to show you that. I could just say, go ahead and destroy yourself. But out of my gracious love for you, that you've done nothing to deserve, I judge you and show you, you are wrong. You are doing the wrong thing. And now you have a chance to respond and follow me and, and come into a relationship with me. And so they say, well, that's not right. That's not right. If, if my bad behavior makes God look good, then it's not right that he judges me. Well, if he doesn't judge you, you're going to self-destruct, is what Paul's saying. And then they get mad and they say, well, then I'll just be bad anyway. Why should I even bother being good? And Paul says, you're a fool, basically. <laughs> you, know, you want to be bad, look what that's going to do. You know, it, it, it just all ends. There, and basically, his opponent doesn't have anything else to say. He's just he's flailing. And Paul says, look, you can't get to heaven based on trying to fulfill the law. You can't get to heaven based on circumcision. And you can't pawn it off and say, I'm unfair. You can't just say, no, no, God's not just. God's not good. I, I, you know, this isn't right. God can do whatever God wants. God is right. You are not. You deserve to die and will be destroyed unless he steps in. And he judges you to bring you back to him. And so that you can come and know him. Pretty wild, huh? Kind of twist your brain a little bit. But when you stop and think about it, you realize that it's good. You know, people, you know, your parents, as parents, as a parent, or if you're a kid, either way, discipline is a good thing. You know, in Hebrews 12, it says that God disciplines those whom he loves. A parent that doesn't love their child will let their kid, you know, keep, you know, putting their finger in the, the you know, the, the, the socket or whatever and, and burn, you know, electrocuting themselves. They'll let them do that. But a parent who loves them will say, don't do that. We'll discipline them. The kid may not like it. You're not doing it for the kid to like it. You're doing what's good for the kid. So God loves you enough that he'll say, no, don't do that. You're not going to make it unless you come to me. Okay, so now let's look at some applications for this. The first thing is, do we think that we're superior to others? Do we think we're superior to others because of our Bible knowledge or church attendance or our title as Christians? You know, especially from this religious viewpoint, we, we've, got to, we've got to back off. And a lot of this is just thinking it through. But, but I'll tell you, it, I, I've got a personal grievance here. It bothers me because I think we're moving in a direction, maybe it's been this way for a while, um, of, of having kind of an institutionalized religion. Like, I'll hear people, it's almost embarrassing, sometimes I'll be with people that are Christians, and somebody who's not a Christian. So the Christian's going to tell them, the, the non-Christian, about what? About how good their church is. About some Christian politician. About how Christians are not getting their rights met. Um, and about how, you know, Christian politics. You know, and, and they get into all this stuff, but they, they never really mention their relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's all like, you know, we're we're better than you are. 
Um, and I, I don't think that, at the end of the day, I, I don't think that wins the game. You know, that's not what people look for. And we, we really have to ask ourselves the questions, do we, do we really think we're that much better? Because we're not. We're just as messed up as everybody else. I had a person tell me this once. He said, it'd be really neat if this local Christian high school beat all the other ones in sports. Because then people might come to know Christ. Do you think that would do it? No, you know, that doesn't do it. What does it is when people see, I'm as messed up as you are. I am a fellow struggler on this journey. I now have peace and joy that I didn't have before. I now am a better person than I used to be. And I I sense God's guidance to help me in making decisions in life, and I know I'm going to go to heaven. But I still struggle, and I'm still just a regular person. I'm very much where you're at. We've got 8 to 15 people in our lives that are probably unchurched people that don't know Jesus. And if we really love them, we build relationships with them. But we don't tell them how we're better than them. We never argue over Christian rights. We, we, We tell them God loves them. And we love them. And we treat them well, and we, we, we show them that we're struggling. If we make mistakes, we tell them we're sorry. And they see that we're on the journey and that we're real. Now, the second thing we talk about is sacraments, ordinances, and rituals. Is there any sacrament, ordinance, or ritual that's going to get you into heaven? There, there's not. And so, if you've ever thought that I'm going to get to heaven because I've taken the Lord's Supper, because... I'm a member of the church because I was baptized. Or fill in the blank. There's no religious activity that you can do that will get you into heaven. You just can't do it. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. So, so give up. Okay? Um, give up. But here's the balance. You follow what God calls you to do. And he commands you to be baptized. You don't get baptized to get saved. You get baptized out of obedience. And you get baptized to celebrate the fact that your life has been changed. Okay? So get baptized if you haven't been. And if you have been baptized, understand that that's not going to get you in. It's just a very special moment of identifying with Jesus and being obedient to him and identifying as being a part of the family of God. And then the last one is the grace of God, the grace of judgment. What do we do when somebody brings up something that we've done wrong. Barry, you and I were just talking about this today. We were talking about, you know, talking about people, you know, when you see something that's going wrong, you know, you have your kids and you, you want to talk to a teacher or somebody, you want to talk to a, um, you know, a, a person to try to help work things out. Um, but what do people usually do when you're even, you know, you like the person and you, and you like 95% of what they're doing, but you, you bring up something. Or maybe that person is your wife or your, your husband. And you tell them something they did wrong. What do people tend to do? They get excited and they go, thank you so much, right? Do they do that? They get, they get pretty defensive, don't they? Well, back from the dead, Scott Van Dyken is here. Good, you made it down the hill, huh? All right. Good to see you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, okay. Good to see you, buddy. Um, but, but what do you... 
you know, we, we talk about this, we, we tend to defend ourselves, we tend to justify ourselves, we tend to get upset. Here's something I want you to try looking at this way. It, is it good for us to tell people, God's really working in my life? Uh, is it good for us to tell people, you know, that I was talking to a friend and they, they, they've come to know Christ, or if we tell somebody I was, somebody was sick, I prayed for them, they were healed? You know, we talk about those kinds of things. I'm going to Bible study, people... When people ask you how you're doing your walk with God and you tell them different things that are going on in your life, that's not wrong. It's wrong if you're just saying that all the time and bragging to people. That's wrong. But to talk about it in conversation, especially with a close friend who really cares, or in your Bible study where they're praying for you over something, and be able to say, yeah, thanks for praying you know, for my dad. He got better. He's, he's feeling better. Um, I, I really believe it was because we were praying, because I've been praying. Um, how are you doing your walk with the Lord? Really good. Lately I've been studying... The book of Job, I've been going through some hard times, but God's really been teaching me some things. Here's some things he's been teaching me. That's really good. We tend to be good on that. Here's the flip side that's equally important. I'm really struggling spending time with God lately. I, I've been getting really angry. I, I, I got mad at my kids today, and I shouldn't have. I, I disciplined them out of anger. My wife and I are having some troubles talking about some stuff, communicating. Could you pray for us? Why don't we do that? Which shows more maturity? In many ways, the second hand shows more maturity in Christ. It's easy for us to talk about how well we're doing. It should be, it's maybe a little bit harder, but it should be something that we should equally be able to talk about how we're struggling. Because God's grace is shown through that judgment. When he shows us that we're struggling, we're having a hard time, we can grow through that when we confess it before God and get it right. And when we don't go shouting this to everybody, we don't wear our dirty laundry everywhere, but, but we basically have family in Christ that can pray for us. And that's where small groups, we pray for one another. And that's where our close friends, we ask them to pray for us. And we're honest with the struggles we have in our lives. Because it's when we confess our problems that we now, when we, when we confront our sin, we now have a chance to grow. We now have a chance to change. We now have a chance to, to find healing. But if we don't ever admit it's there, if we're always trying to hide it up and talk about all the good things that are going on, we're never going to get any place. And so it's really important to do that. But I'll tell you, you know, I've spent... I spent the first 18 years of my life just trying to be good enough. Didn't work. And then after that, even after I began to, to walk with the Lord, I found that I still had this urge to be good enough, and it and became a, a, a constant frustration in my life. I'm learning more and more that the only way to be good enough is when God makes you good enough through Jesus Christ. You join me in a word of prayer. Lord, we're, we're not good enough. We know that but we know that you are good enough. And we pray that for any person here that doesn't know you today, that they would come and talk to us um, and work through these issues, that they would give their lives to you, surrender their lives to you, and realize they're not good enough, but you are, and that you will, you will transfer that to them if they will just surrender to you by faith. So I pray that you would do that. And, and for those of us that know you, may we walk closer to you. May we be more honest about our faith and our walk in Jesus Christ. Um, 
and, and we pray for your guidance in our lives that we would draw closer to you and to one another and to put the religious efforts along with the moral efforts and the immoral efforts behind us and trust solely in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.